0: Well, let's turn there in our Bibles to the 90th Psalm. Um, If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 599. I have no idea where it is, either on the iPad, the Nook, the iPhone, or the Kindle, all of which I think I've seen in action uh, earlier on in the service. Uh, And uh, I think what we'll do is uh, read in from that last verse that we Uh, we're singing to the end of the psalm. So, Psalm 90, we've sung the first uh, 12 verses. Uh, So, let me begin at verse 12 and read through to the end. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, Uh, that is the Uh, Same verb that he'd used uh, earlier on in verse 3 when he says, You turn men back to dust. Turn back, O Lord. Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands." slightly intimidating to be speaking after a young man who can change nappies, rear cows, look after pigs, construct houses, and a variety of uh, other things. But I I must say what a blessing to hear uh, of that work and to be encouraged to pray for it. There is a kind of connection between the theme of the sermon this morning when David Robertson finished his series on the Book of Job, and this 90th Psalm that uh, I chose for the message tonight simply because it is a kind of of end-of-the-year change of the calendar psalm. And we just finished a series on Sunday nights and uh, there was nowhere in particular to go. One of the things the psalm has in common with the book of Job is that this psalm and the book of Job both belong to what in the Old Testament is usually referred to as the wisdom literature, the kind of literature that enables you to live for the glory of God in a world that is out of joint, broken, bruised, and misshapen. and certainly. Uh, As we've been discovering, the book of Job enables you to do that. In many ways, wisdom literature is like those uh, visual puzzles that we sometimes see. Uh, The one where uh, some people look at it and they see an old hag, and other people look at it and they see a beautiful princess. And the people who see the old hag characteristically can never see the princess. Uh, If you've ever uh, done that, it's a good thing if you're able to shift from the hag to the princess to notice what the visual clue is that produces the change, and then you're able to do it almost automatically. You know how to do it. And wisdom literature is like that, Wisdom literature does not, as it were, blind you to the realities and perversities of the world, but it tends to just turn the picture round a bit so that you can see how it is as a child of God, you live in a world like this. And you can do so, you can keep your balance and remain stable when things around you have gone out of joint, and uh, even when chaos ensues. It brings stability and security. And one of the things this wisdom literature seeks to do, and Psalm 90 is a, a primary example of it, is that it turns the telescope the other way around on life. It teaches us that when we become destabilized in life, when we panic in life, the reason is usually because we're looking at life through the wrong end of the telescope. Characteristically, we are looking at man and seeing him magnified, and we are looking at God and seeing God minimized. And we need to turn the telescope round to see God as big and man as small. That's why, in a way, the key verse here is the prayer the psalmist makes in verse 12, where he says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I don't think he is actually speaking about counting the days of your life, although I once had an enormously distinguished colleague who did exactly that. He knew how many threescore years and ten amounted to, and he measured his life out exactly numerically like that, and I, I think that may well be a good and healthy exercise for us. But what he's really saying is not help me with my arithmetic. Help me not to forget to factor in the leap years in three score years and ten. I think he's saying, help me to assess the days in which I live. Help me to understand what it means to live for your glory in a world like this, so that I may gain a heart of wisdom, so that I may see your glory, and learn how it is in a world like this, I can actually live in a way that displays your glory. And as he does this, as I say, he's turning the telescope around. He is looking at life in a, an entirely God centered fashion, instead of the man centered fashion that uh, is characteristic of the world in which he lives. Very interesting Psalm, as you would see. It has the title A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, and it's the only Psalm in the Psalter that is attributed to Moses. It's actually rather interesting. There are eight references to Moses in the Psalter, and seven out of the eight of them are contained in this fourth book of the Psalms. You'll notice that the heading of the psalm is book four, Psalms 90 to 106. And in these psalms, there are seven of the eight references to Moses. And interestingly, this book, obviously deliberately edited in this way as the psalms were brought together, and somebody, probably in the time of God's people's exile in Babylon, Decided that this would be the place where Psalms that referred to Moses would fit. And so this little book in the five books of the Psalms begins with the Psalm of Moses, the man of God, and it actually virtually ends also with a reference to Moses. The significance of that is this, that most of the Psalms belong to the story of David and the Davidic kingdom that God had promised would bring such blessing, not only to the nation would make them a great nation, but would in some time actually extend the blessings of God right to the ends of the earth. Sometimes sing of that in the 72nd Psalm, His name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. The idea that the kingdom of God, this Davidic kingdom, would actually stretch to the end of history and to the end of the earth and bring blessing to the world so that the great promise given to Abram would be gloriously fulfilled, that in his seed through David, the nations of the earth would be blessed. The promise, of course, that comes to fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason Jesus' last words on earth are, go into all the world with this gospel and bring this blessing to the nations. But if in fact the Psalter was put together in the form in which we now have it, the people of God were in exile and the Davidic throne had come to nothing. Actually, there's an expression of that in the previous Psalm, isn't there? when the psalmist prays, O Lord, how long will you hide yourself forever? And then almost at the end in verse 49, O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? What do you do, i say, in our mutual youth I often used to hear, Our brother David Ellis say, What do you do when God's providences seem to contradict God's word? Here are all these promises, and here they are languishing, as they say later on in the Psalms. They taunted us in Babylon saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And the response we don't have the heart to sing the Lord's song in this foreign exiled land where God seems to have abandoned us. And so the psalm is a prayer in verse 12, to know how to live for the glory of God when the times are out of joint, to be able to have the wisdom to understand. What are the keys here? Now, uh, uh, most of us, I imagine, here tonight are Christian people. We have some understanding of what it means to go through difficult times, and our instinct is to say to people, now, what you need to do is to trust in the Lord. What you need to do is to trust in the Lord. Now, that's good and godly, and biblical counsel. But it does raise an important question. What about the Lord am I supposed to trust in at a time like this? You know, we're different. We're all different in our relationships with one another. I happen to appreciate people I see, people who have horns. That is, people who have bits that stick out of them. People who aren't like smooth and, uh, you know, perfectly groomed and their etiquette is perfect. They, their shoes are perfectly polished. They, the creases are, are absolutely perfect. The tie is beautifully knotted. Kind of David Robertson figures. <laughs> you know, I, I actually prefer the David Robertson figure. Don't you, somebody, you know where you are with them, that you can hold on to them. And uh, it's because we're like that, with all our failures and idiosyncrasies perhaps, it's, it's because of that well, that we actually get to know each other because there are, there are big things that dominate our personalities. And, and uh, for good or ill, we can say about people, well, you always know where you are with them. Whereas there are other people where somebody says, do you know so-and-so? How do you get on with so-and-so? You say, I actually, for all I've known them these years, I never really know where I am with them. Well, you see, the burden of this psalm is to enable us to say, I know where I am with God, because I've turned the telescope round. I've stopped putting my circumstances under the microscope. And I've started putting God under the microscope. And I see that there are characteristics in God, what the theologians would call, there are attributes in God. There are are personality elements in God's being, And when I look at them, I see my situation and circumstances in an entirely different light. The circumstances may not necessarily change, but what I discover, and this is one of the Psalms where the concluding discovery of the Psalmist is actually put as the introduction to the whole Psalm. Happens in many Psalms, actually the 23rd Psalms like that, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and here is how I found that out. And Psalm 90 is the same, isn't it? He says, Lord, this is what I've discovered. You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, here is my security. Here is my perspective from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Well, in the course of the psalm, he, he focuses our attention on at least these three things. First of all, he tells us how he began to see his personal life in the light of God's everlastingness. He began to see his personal life in the light of God's everlastingness. We've been singing the rather melancholy words that he uses to describe his own life and others, this overwhelming sense of littleness. We are specks of dust. We are fragile. We are frail, in the big picture, our lives seem to be so brief. Even those who live a long life, at the end of that long life, almost without exception, they will say, it all seems to have been so brief. And even those who have some right sense of themselves, who have accomplished much, will say, and I seem to have done so little. It just seems to have been like a day that has passed. I feel as though I have been like the new grass of the morning with the dew making it so beautiful and attractive and fresh. And by the time of the evening here in the ancient Near East, the sun has come and by evening it is dry and, and withered. And you, you feel that within yourself. And so he feels small. He feels so insignificant. His life seems to pass just like a watch in the night. And you see what's happening. It's a very characteristic thing in Scripture that the Scriptures seek to provide a remedy for. The more I focus upon myself and my littleness and my insignificance, the more insignificant I am going to seem to myself. And everything people say, oh, you should be encouraged because you have done this and you have done that, just seems to put the screws down on on my sense of smallness. And the psalmist has uh, felt something of that. But now he's begun to see something different. He's begun to see that that smallness has been placed by God into his bigness. And this little life of his, it's three score years and ten, or four score, if he be blessed, or six score, as it happened in the days of Moses' life, has actually been taken up into the purposes and plans of one who, before I was even conceived, was from everlasting, and who after my life is gone in this world will be from that point to everlasting. And that what I need to see is that for all the littleness of my life, I actually have been caught up by this everlasting God into the glorious tapestry that he is weaving through history. And as he weaves that tapestry through history, what he was doing, for example, through believers who were in Babylon, the people around you could have called you Meshach in Babylon, changed your name to a pagan name, And you could have felt as challenges went out to your life, I am so small and so insignificant. And no sense whatsoever that what God was doing with your insignificance was weaving you into such a tapestry that boys and girls throughout all history to the end of the ages would be encouraged by the fact that little Meshach saw God as bigger than Nebuchadnezzar and refused to yield to the king's megalomania and remained fast in his faith to the Lord. And so he's saying, you know, uh, we need to not just focus on the littleness of our lives, But to understand that what gives my little life significance is that I have been given the privilege by grace of being caught up into a plan that stretches from everlasting to everlasting. This is why in the New Testament, the New Testament makes so much of the fact that little me, I have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. That is, we have been seeing here on Sunday evenings. My Saviour's heart prayer is that I might be kept by His Father for the day in eternity when I not only see Him face to face, but I see Him in all His glory and am with Him forever. And it's this that makes the apparently big things small and my apparently insignificant life, gloriously significant in God's purposes. Then, of course, there's a second thing. He not only sees his personal life in the light of God's everlastingness, he sees his national life in the light of God's righteousness. And this is in verses 7 through 12. What is he thinking about? Probably probably Moses is thinking about some of the tragedies that took place during the 40 years in the wilderness. The rebellion, for example, that led to the death of so many hundreds, uh, huge numbers of those who had been rescued from the bondage of Egypt. And uh, as he thinks about that, he... He's crying out to the Lord, we are consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. And you'll notice now the vocabulary that he uses about God. Verse 7, your anger. Verse 7b, your indignation. Verse 9, your wrath. These are very significant words. Uh, We were Learning this morning, weren't we? That sometimes people think, well, this is a language of the Old Testament, we're living in the New Testament, it's all gone. But if you know your Bible fairly well, those words that Will read from the prophecy of Hosea about a day coming when people will call on the mountains to fall and to hide them, uh, they reappear, don't they, in the New Testament at the end of uh, Revelation chapter 6 when men will be calling on the mountains and the hills to fall on them to protect them from the wrath of the Lamb. So, what he's speaking about here is not the project of some Old Testament God who somehow or another has been transformed into the loving Jesus of the New Testament, what he's speaking here is about the reality of the judgment of God. And it's a very terrible thing. But you see, one of the things that's happening with the psalmist here is this. He has seen the situation in the light of how awful this is for man. Now he's beginning to see this situation in the light of the righteousness and the holiness of God. That's a hugely important thing, isn't it? Don't you discover in your Christian witness that most people think that basically since they're at least in the 51st percentile and better than most people, although it seems 99% of people creep into that percentile. If they've done anything wrong, it's very minimal. But as Paul says, you know, when we compare ourselves to ourselves, we're doing okay. And what the psalmist is teaching us here is that we only see the reality and perversity of sin when we see what punishment fits the crime. And this is a huge thing for him, because this is an awful season through which his national life is passing. And if indeed this psalm is a psalm for the people in exile, they are passing through a a, a season when the whole nation has been pulled to pieces. Um, What do you do when that happens? Well, you see what he's doing, don't you? He is resting in the righteousness of God, in the absolute justice of God. And this is what wisdom is. Wisdom enables us to live in a world that is out of joint, under the judgment of God, understanding that the reason it's out of joint is because it is under the judgment of God. You know, sometimes people say to you, don't they, things go really bad in the society, and they say, do you think we're under the judgment of God? And you want to say, you need to read the first chapter of Romans. It isn't that we weren't under the judgment of God 50 years ago, and we're under the judgment of God now. It is that the judgment of God, the wrath of God is poured out Upon all unrighteousness and all ungodliness, always. And sometimes we're naive enough to say, but look at what people are doing and they're getting off with it. I don't know where this phrase comes from, (laughs) scot-free. They're getting off with it scot-free and there's no thunder and lightning coming from God. And you say to them, well, you need to read Romans chapter 1, don't you? The way in which God reveals his judgment, reveals his wrath, is to say, if that is what you're determined to have, you may have it. And there is that awful refrain in Romans 1. God gives us up to our own desires and he gives us up to what we want to have. And here are foolish people saying, you Christians say that this kind of lifestyle leads to the judgment of God. And we see no sign of it. When your abandonment to it without restraint. And your desire, as Paul says, to bring other people into it is actually the evidence of the judgment of God upon your lives and indeed upon your society as God allows a society to remove the restraints that there are on the sinfulness of the human heart. Now, how do you live in a world like that without becoming a complaining Christian, a desolated Christian, a hopeless Christian, I've never forgotten as a teenager being in a bookstore, in, a Christian bookstore in Glasgow, and over the top of the bookshelves, I heard these two men in conversation. I could tell what their Christian association was from their conversation. One said to them, well, how are things doing in your church? And the other said, not doing very well. But he said, what can you expect in days like these? What can you expect in days like these? hopelessness, despair. You know, we need better days if we're going to be strong Christian witnesses. Not a bit of it, this psalm is saying. What this psalm is saying is that it is possible. Thank God the extent to which it has been so clear in the last hundred years just how possible this is to live for the glory of God In the worst conceivable circumstances. Now, how do you do it? You recognize that in the midst of it, the hand of the righteousness of God is present. And it's because you bow before his holy judgment that you're able to understand your times, like the men of Issachar, and know how do you live in a godless world like this and still live for the glory of God? It's only, you see, in in such times as these, men seem enormous. They seem to have vast power. And the psalmist here is teaching us to understand no matter how much power the wicked may have, They stand under the judgment of God. And the day will come when they too will call to the hills and the mountains to cover them from the wrath of the Lamb, about which in their heart of hearts they know, continue to resist. There's something else here. It's just something here that's very reminiscent of the prayer of Daniel in exile in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays about this judgment of God, and he says, Oh God, the thing that keeps me stable here is that I know that this is your judgment, and you are my God. And I know that you are a God who is utterly righteous that you are simply fulfilling the promises and the warnings that you gave to us. But in that same prayer, he not only takes hold of God's righteousness in bringing judgment upon wickedness, but on God's righteousness as he promises that he will be gracious to those who turn to him. And this is how this psalm comes to an end in the third section. You notice now his prayer. He asks God, who has turned back people to the dust, to turn back in grace and mercy. And fascinatingly, while he has a fairly large vocabulary to describe the judgment of God, he has an even larger vocabulary to describe the graciousness of God. And so he's been thinking about seeing his life in the light of God's everlastingness and seeing the national life and the light of God's righteousness. And now he's beginning to see, as he looks at the Lord, he's beginning to see his own future life in the light of God's graciousness. And look at the language he uses. Verse 13. He says, O Lord, have compassion on your servants. And in verse 17, Lord, may your favor rest upon us. And in between, those are like the two slices of bread with the meat of the sandwich in between. In between, you'll notice what he says. He says, if this is true, then you will satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. And we will sing for joy. You will make us glad as many days as you afflicted us. Your deeds will be shown to your servants and your splendor to their children. And you see, he's filled with hope. He's actually filled with joy. Because he knows that this God of perfect righteousness is also a father of an infinite graciousness. And so he prays, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Actually, that's the same word that's used in Psalm 27 when the psalmist says he wants, to, he wants to spend his time in the temple of the Lord to see the face of the Lord and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's almost as though he's saying, The thing that keeps me stable in a world like this is when I raise my eyes to the everlasting God, I behold a beauty in his face. I see a glory in his face that fills me with joy, that floods my heart with gladness, that enables me to live sweetly with poise and grace and Dignity and attractiveness in such an ungodly world? Just one more thing as we come to the end of our study. We should ask this question every time we read a psalm. Actually, we, we sang a psalm this morning, the 40th Psalm, um, and if you, if you knew your New Testament quite well, maybe the more obscure part of it, You would have thought, that's interesting. Even if you didn't know the psalm, you would have thought, I think I've heard these words somewhere in the New Testament. In the middle of the 40th psalm, when the psalmist says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. It's written in the book about me, Lo, I come to do your will, a body you have prepared for me to sacrifice. Remember how the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, when the Son of God came into the world, that was one of the psalms he would sing. It's a little hint to say to New Testament Christians, whenever you read a psalm, don't close the book before you've asked the question, how would Jesus have sung this psalm? because presumably he did. How would Jesus have taken on board this sense of the, the temporalness of life and the judgment of God and the graciousness of God? How would, what would he have been thinking about when he sang this? We know what he must have been thinking about when he sang Psalm 40. It's not these Old Testament sacrifices that are really going to do it. You have prepared a body for me. And so I've come to do your will. And by my obedience and sacrifice to win salvation for my people. Don't you think he would be saying here, Father, you sent me from the everlasting world into the temporalness of this world 33 years short years to deal with all this. You sent me to bear your wrath against their sin so that I would come under your curse in order that the blessing promised to Abraham that would come through the son of David would actually then flood over into their lives. And yes, Father, it's also true that it's because of me and the way in which I was exiled from your presence, banished from your sight, that there is grace and favor and a welcome and a home for them. And so he could say this, from everlasting to everlasting You have been my dwelling place, and I come, O Father, into the temporal world. I bear the shame and the the curse of their sin. Your wrath poured out upon me on the cross. I who dwelt in everlasting joy and bliss, and now cry out to you and to the holy angels, why am I forsaken? in order that those who come and trust in me might know that you will satisfy them in the morning with your unfailing love, that you will make them glad, that you will show them your favor. And that as I, Jesus, would have sung, as I experienced these realities in the morning of Easter, Sunday, Sunday, I will be satisfied with your unfailing love and sing for joy and be glad all my days. As from the east and the west and the north and the south, you gather the afflicted into your kingdom and pour out the blessings of your grace upon them. If you're my age, this is the time of year when you were always chronologically challenged. uh, I would guess for many of us. You took out the checkbook and wrote the check and then you scored out because you'd written 2013 instead of 2014. You wrote the thank you letters when you were a little boy and you scored out the 2013 and it's right in 2014. And you were, you kind of, you lost your orientation. And in many ways that's a parable for how Perhaps some of us live the Christian life. We've lost our orientation. we become disoriented. And man seems big. And the world seems ghastly. And hope has failed us. And we need this reorientation of the gospel to God. And there are things in God to hold on to that he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is righteous, and he is gracious. And the reason we know that is because whoever has seen Jesus has seen that this is what he is like, because there is nothing un-Jesus-like in God. And so we come with the psalmist and say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place and our security. May that be true of us at the end of this year and throughout the days to come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the way it sheds light into our darkness. We pray, Lord, as we often struggle in the Christian life and often seek to do better and to be better, we We pray this night as we receive your word and the fellowship of your people, as we sing the songs of Zion, as we come to the Lord's table, we pray that you would do your work by your word and through the gift of the Lord's Supper in our lives. We are too weak to do it for ourselves. And sometimes we are too stubborn to allow your word to do it in us. But, oh, Lord, let your word do its work in us and among us. And lead us on, we pray, as churches and friends into this coming year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.